Well, a very good morning to all of you. If you would join me in one more word of prayer together as we pray over this time where we will dig into God's word alongside one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of that song, for the gift of your peace, for the gift of your presence. Thank you, God, that you are here with us, that your love surrounds us, that your people are alongside us. And may now, God, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. And may we honor you as you seek to illuminate our minds and our hearts with the power of your good word. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody together said, Amen. Would you please turn your attention uh, to the screen as we read together from Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7, if you would follow along as I read God's words. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are on a three-part journey through a conversation around gratitude. And we've spent these last few weeks looking at different angles on gratitude, what it looks like to be grateful for the past, even in the hard moments, what it looks like to be grateful in the present moment, and today what it looks like to be a people who are grateful for the future, no matter what the future holds. How often do you find yourself wondering about the future? How many of you spend a decent portion of your day considering what comes next, what will happen within the hours, the days, the months, the years, the decades that will unroll before us? Some of us may be thinking right now about the very near short-term future where you're going to go to brunch after church today, how long the preacher is going to go today so you can get to that brunch. Some of you might be wondering what your NFL team is going to do or not do this afternoon. Some of you wonder what you will be like, what your health will be like, your finances, whatever it might be in the days and the weeks and the months to come. How will you care well for those you love? Who will care for you? Perhaps you lament the particularly chaotic or tumultuous time we live in and wonder, will it get worse? What will happen in the days ahead? Sundays are always an interesting day to muse upon the future. I don't know what it's like in your home, but at our house around 5 o'clock on Sunday evening, we transition from lazy Sunday people to anxious about Monday people. And there's a little bit of chaos and preparation for what will lay ahead in the week that comes. Max Roser, an Oxford economist, reported through his research that Americans 
who have historically been known as fairly optimistic folks, are 94% pessimistic about the future. Only 6% of Americans reported that they believe the future will be better than the present moment. That despite all of the accomplishments we've made in science, in technology, in medicine, in healthcare, 6% of Americans think that the future will somehow be better. The review of general psychology reports that we spend three times more of our time thinking about the future than we do about the present or the past. We wonder. French Renaissance writer Michel Montaigne said, my life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. And Mark Twain once quipped, the future interests me. I'm going to spend the rest of my life there. When I started our conversation today by asking you about the future, what was the dominant emotion that came to you? When I say future, what crops up into your brain or your heart or what reaction takes over your body? Is it fear, anticipation, exhilaration, excitement, nervousness, anger, dread, anxiety? And did the feeling of gratitude come up for any of us? It may have for some of you, but it rarely tops the list as the dominant emotion that people experience when they look forward. Human beings are more prone to wince, lament, wonder, or fear than they are to give God praise and thanksgiving for whatever comes next. So how do we face the future with a posture of gratitude? Scripture calls us to look forward with anticipation, thanking God for all he has already done and praising him for all he will do. How do we look forward with gratitude? It's easy to look back to be grateful for things we've experienced, love and graces we've received, even in our hardest and darkest moments, we can, most of us, look back and find a shred of light that shines through the window of life at us. And we can be grateful right now in this moment because we woke up today and we got another day. And we have people around us, whether friend or stranger, we are breathing, we are alive. God created us. It is easy to be thankful in the present. But thankful for the future? How does that happen when we don't even know what the future will bring and when most of us enter it with the list of emotions that we just walked through? Well, in our passage for today, Paul adds this little word, thanksgiving, to these verses from Philippians. Eucharistus is the Greek word used here. It literally means the giving of thanks for God's grace. It's the word from which we get the term Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. We use that word because Jesus gave thanks as he gathered his friends around the table and they broke bread together. Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi. 
Every one of Paul's letters was authored to a different group, a different congregation, and he had a different relationship with all of them, just like you and I would if we were to write emails or send texts to a variety of different people. We have a different background and a different history with every person we interact with. And the church at Philippi was very beloved by Paul. They were, they were close friends. Paul spent time at this church on what was called his second missionary journey, his second loop of travels to churches, and he spent a good deal of time with these folks. He shared a partnership and a friendship with them. And so this letter is filled with gratitude and with praises for them. Paul is thankful for who they are. He's thankful for their friendship. And if you read this letter from start to finish, you will see over and over again his gratitude come through this letter for who they are, for their friendship, and for the way that they love Jesus, and for the way this church lives out its faith. Paul writes this letter. He pens this passage from Rome. And what has just happened is a member of the Philippian church, Epaphroditus, has come to visit Paul in Rome. And Paul had some things that he needed. He, he, he found himself facing some need. And the church at Philippi sent Epaphroditus 700 miles with basically a care package to meet his needs. 700 miles in an era before air travel or automobiles. And so he comes, and he's exhausted from his journey, and he sees Paul, and these friends reunite. And they spend time together, and they catch one another up on all that's happening, and Paul tucks this letter into the hands of Epaphroditus before he returns to Philippi. And as I said, the letter is filled with gratitude. This passage we read today, and many of us have heard it before, some of you, and I heard this after the first service, oh, that's my favorite verse. It trends, it's a meme on social media, it lands on plaques and such throughout houses, and it lands on greeting cards. And it's a passage that often brings us comfort many times after a moment of gratitude. Thank you, God, for giving me peace or comfort or rest, or thank you, God, for helping me achieve something wonderful or great that I've always longed for. It's a passage that we often use as sort of this finality, this final moment to it, this ah, peace moment. It's interesting to point out, though, that Epaphroditus came to visit Paul in Rome because Paul was in prison in Rome. And he had great needs because he was languishing in a Roman jail cell and was facing his death. Daily, the people around him, the men around Paul, died of violence and disease or execution. Paul was no longer free to move about the city, no longer free to travel to Philippi to see these friends face to face. He sat under the watch of Roman soldiers facing the prospect of his death. This is the place those words come from. It is important to note that Paul does not tell us to be thankful and to give God our prayers and petitions with thanksgiving. He doesn't say that from a place of comfort. He is not on the back of a yacht on a high-end vacation. He is not overlooking a vista in Napa. He is not at a retirement party or a graduation party. These words did not come to him at the end of a robust Thanksgiving feast with days' worth of leftovers 
stockpiled in the fridge. Philippians 4, these words come easy to us from moments like that. But we have to remember the invitation to face the future with gratitude as it comes to us in these verses came from a Roman prison cell from a man who was facing his death. And what he said to the Philippian church, he said to them knowing their life was not going to be easy, that because they believed in Jesus, they were likely also to be persecuted, imprisoned, beaten, and tortured. Never mind that if they managed to escape that, the very harsh realities of life at this time in human history were very complicated and challenging. Disease and violence and torment were part of the everyday life. And these folks were also, Paul knew, going to grieve Paul's death. They were going to have to grieve the death of their beloved friend. And yet Paul, rather than begging the Philippian church to advocate on his behalf, to call all the officials they knew, to get his sentence reduced, to get him sprung out of jail, instead of doing any of that, he says to them, rejoice and take your prayers and take your petitions and shroud them cover them, undergird them with thanksgiving. Look to your future for all that you ask me for, for all that is going to be hard and tragic, and posture yourself with gratitude. How do we do this? I mean, this posture does not come naturally to most of us. I know it certainly is not natural for me, and the cultural default and preset for many of us is one of concern or worry. We buy products to ensure a safe future academically, physically, socially, financially. As a parent, I am filled with worry when I survey the scene. I have a teenager, which is cause for great anxiety. And I have two other children, elementary school age, and I wonder and fear about the world they will inherit. Two of my three children were born after the invention of the iPhone. Their generation doesn't even have a name yet. What will happen in their future? My primary emotion that I confess when I survey the future is not one of gratitude. It is one of worry and concern. This is a passage where Paul invites us to infuse our life with prayer. He talks about prayer in this passage. Prayer of praise, of adoration of God. And then he says, take that prayer and then take all of the petitions, which are all the requests, all the things you hope for and desire and long for, and bring them together and wrap them in gratitude and present them to God. Only with gratitude, he says, can we make proper praises and proper requests of our future. William Barclay, a commentator, says this, Thanksgiving must be the universal accompaniment of prayer. We have to face God and our future with gratitude. This 
is what Paul is telling us in this passage. And it's why I still remember to this day, years ago when I came to faith as a high school student at a Young Life camp out in Colorado, and I was handed my very first Bible. I remember it was a teal green Bible. And the youth leader who handed me this 1990s looking teal green Bible said to me, be thankful first and then hit your list of things you want from God. Be thankful first. Go before God and give him all praise for everything you have received, for the fact that you are alive to enjoy this day. And then, only then, can we move into the future. Our petitions, which is Paul's word for requests here, are future-oriented. We ask God for the comforts, the health, the healing, the growth, whatever it is we desire for our lives, even when we're praying about the past, maybe things we've experienced that have been painful or harmful, we're asking God to make them all right come the future. And so our petitions are future-oriented. And God is saying in this passage, face that future and undergird those petitions and requests with gratitude. Why? Why be thankful when we stand at the edge of an uncertain future? When many times we look ahead and say, there is nothing good coming my way. Why? Why can we and should we do that? Because the God of the Bible has already figured out the future. The God of the Bible is not a fickle, stingy, scared, or changing God. Our God is filled with abundance, and we, as people of faith, inhabit a narrative where the end of the story is one of salvation and glory. The Philippians to whom Paul was writing, were as anxious about their future, and they had the same end in store as we do today. At that time, they worshipped a pantheon of gods and goddesses who may or may not have been placated by their offerings. They lived at that time in a religious, social, and political climate where the rules were always changing, where the whim of Caesar could change the entire trajectory of life, and as we already discussed, life was a harsh, brutal experience in a challenging and unpredictable world. And Paul's invitation to them and to us is to trust the end of the story. It's why in Romans 8, Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings, the present mess we are in, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. We are recipients of a hope-filled future. Now, there's a very real danger here of burying our heads in the sand or zipping up our jackets and heading out right now because, okay, everything's gonna work out fine in the end. The reality is we have a very real life to navigate and live between here and the return of Jesus when justice and mercy are brought to set this world right. And life is hard. And bad things will happen. Some of you have lived yours and will live more. And some of us haven't gotten there yet, but 
It's going to happen. Life is not easy. You don't need a preacher to tell you that. There is heartbreak. There is darkness. There are challenges that each one of us will face. And so to say that we can be grateful because God holds the end is not to say that everything is always going to be sunshine and roses and easy because we love Jesus. It is to say that when every single one of those hard places come, the God of the universe will be alongside us and moving in us and through us to get us through the hard times. And so our gratitude is not that God did everything we ever asked him to do for us. Our gratitude comes from the fact that God has promised to be with his people through their hardships and to stand at the end of the narrative saying, finally, well done, my servants. I have saved you. I have rescued you. I have ransomed you. This narrative, this trajectory, this hard life we share ends with my glorious mercy. We are called to be grateful that God has rescued us and redeemed us and that we sit here today already recipients of that redemption and one day having the opportunity to know it fully. And having that gives us the opportunity to stand, as Paul is saying then, with a posture of gratitude for the future, even when the most horrific events that we never even imagined come our way. This is challenging. Walter Brueggemann is a great commentator and he talks about the fact that this is challenging because the narrative that we inherit in our culture today is one of scarcity that we turn on the news and we turn on our phone or whatever it is and we're marketed to constantly out of a narrative of scarcity. Hoard this, protect that, go get this. Welcome to Black Friday. Let's get it all if we can. That every single day, this is the narrative of our culture. Every day, every hour of every day. Most of us will say, on a good day, I read my Bible. Maybe I spent 15, 30, 60 minutes in God's Word. That's a good day. But the reality is, every day, every hour of every day, we are marketed to and sold a narrative of scarcity. So when we don't believe there will be enough, or that somehow something will happen if we don't make this little fortress of ours tight enough and strong enough, of course we face our future terrified because we've been told there's not going to be enough. Meanwhile, this abundant God is saying to us, I've given you everything. I've lavished upon you all good things. Trust in that because that is not a narrative of scarcity. It is one of fabulous abundance. This abundance scarcity thing has come to my mind this week as I've watched my daughter make preparations for what will be her 10th birthday. Our youngest goes double digits this coming Friday. And every year, for all of my children, we have a birthday party. And there is, of course, a cake. 
And if you ever want to see a group of people living out of scarcity rather than abundance, watch a group of children hover around a birthday cake and ask for the piece that has the most icing. <laughs> if you get a square cake instead of a round cake, there are four pieces, the corners, that have not one but two sides of icing. And no child wants to be the one who gets the square in the middle with no icing except for anything on the top. And they wield their forks, and the minute the candles are blown out, there is a cacophony of noise of everybody clamoring and screaming for the piece of cake. And there's this very audible groan when the fourth corner goes off to another kid. And maybe you've seen this play out and you've all, I hope, had a birthday cake at some point in your life. I have never ever once been to a birthday party where there was not enough cake. Everybody, when you leave a party, adult or kid party, says, hey, take some cake home. <laughs> we have too much. And every kid that I've watched at a birthday party has the proverb in mind, their eyes are bigger than their head, and they take two bites of the icing-filled glop, and then they push it away. There's always enough cake. Why do we wield the fork like there's not enough cake? It's not really about birthday cake, is it? I mean, we circle up around whatever it is in life, and we grab the fork, and we had better get in while the getting in is good, and we are afraid and anxious about what a future could be like if there's not enough cake, if somebody got mine. In a culture that arguably has more resources at its disposal than any other nation in human history, we are also a tragically scared culture, terrified that someone is going to take our cake. And so we face our future with the fork and with fear in our eyes. Meanwhile, the God of the universe is saying, hey, pay attention. Did you not notice what I did in Genesis way back at the beginning before the cake? I said, it's good, it's good, it's good. It is very, very good. I have given you everything, enough for everybody. Walter Brueggemann again says this. He says, we have to confess that the central problem of our lives is that we are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity, a belief that makes us greedy, mean, and unneighborly. We spend our lives trying to sort out that ambiguity, sitting at the table, looking, at the cake. But from the garden, we go to the narrative of the Israelites who God provided for all throughout the wilderness. And then we've got Jesus, who took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people with 12 baskets of food left over. We worship a God of extravagant abundance who says to us, you may not get everything you want. Actually, you won't. You won't get everything you want because that's just not how life on earth works. But you will get everything you need. Salvation, hope, mercy, 
justice and peace. That I will give to you. And you will see glimmers of it here on earth, and you will see it fully one day when we stand together in God's glory. So, he says, don't face the future wielding the fork. <laughs> face the future with gratitude, praise and thanksgiving for all that we have received already and all that we will receive. And with the knowledge that God is with us around every corner and into every dark tunnel and into every place that we go through this life until we meet God on the other side. It's a great quote I'd like to use to just sum up this time. There's a, a writer named Miroslav Volf who talks about the summation of this whole series we've been on, what it looks like to be grateful for the past and the present and the future. And it's an invitation to stand with a posture of gratitude in all of those places, not for what we achieve while we're there, but for what God has already done for us. And he says this, a rich self has a distinct attitude toward the past, the present and the future. It surveys the past with gratitude for what it has received, not with annoyance about what it hasn't achieved or about how little it has been given. A rich self lives in the present moment with contentment, rather than never having enough of anything except for the burdens that others place on it. It is always having enough of everything. It still strives, but it strives out of a satisfied fullness, not out of the emptiness of craving. And here we are today. A rich self looks toward the future with trust. It gives rather than holding things back in fear of coming out too short because it believes God promise that God will take care of it. Finite and endangered, a rich self still gives because its life is hidden with Christ in the infinite, unassailable, and utterly generous God, the Lord of the present, the past, and the future. And so, my friends, here are these words again. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.